Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you this morning acknowledging your power and your ability to create. Out of nothing and chaos, you created the world. By the very words of your mouth, the world we live in was formed. The order that we see around us did not happen by chance, but was put into place by you. But we can trust and know that how you intended for the world to function is good because you are good. You love and care deeply for your creation. Lord, you grieve over the state of the, 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 that this world is presently in. For in your perfect love, you gave yourself up for this creation. Through judgment, creation will be set right. Lord, we confess that we do not recognize you often as the sovereign creator. We contribute often to the disorder of the world that you have, did create as good. We are quick to dismiss your authority in our lives. We go through our days and we do not give you the ability to command our thoughts, our words, or our deeds. Forgive us for not honoring or respecting the authority that you have instructed to us and given to us. Forgive us for handling your word lightly. Cause us to love and value all that you say and command. Over and above our own desires, over and above what our culture tells us. Grateful for your generosity in all things. Thank you for condescending to us, for instructing us concerning your character. In your wisdom, Lord, in your good and gracious wisdom, you have not left us, this church, Mission Fellowship, alone. But you have given us like-minded churches that can labor together for your kingdom. This morning, we thank you for Hinson Baptist Church in Portland, Oregon. We pray this morning for Pastor Michael Lawrence and the rest of the elders there at Henson. We pray that they would be a, a light of truth, a bastion, Lord, there in, in the city of Portland. May they faithfully and boldly proclaim the gospel in the heart of that city. We, we pray that, that they, as elders, would love the members there at Henson in a self-sacrificial manner. And for the people at Henson, we pray that they would love and respect their elders. May they respond to the leaders of Henson in a way that honors you and glorifies you. This morning, we also pray for the world that you have placed us in. We pray for the nation of Cuba. This past week, the citizens of Cuba expressed their discontentment with the government there. Well, we pray for the president there, Miguel Diaz-Canal that he would hear the cries of his people. We pray that the nation of Cuba would open its borders and the citizens of that country would be free to live, to work, and to worship without fear of the government. Most of all, we pray that the church there would thrive in Cuba. We pray that the church and the gospel would go out and proclaim freedom that can only be found in you and that many people would come to know you because of the freedom that Cuba could have. Finally, Father, we pray for ourselves. We pray that those in our church who have been working with, caring for, and involved or have a heart with those children that are in the foster system, Lord, we pray that they would have a grace and a measure of peace as they go about their work. Lord, the family was created to operate in a certain order, and we pray that those members of mission who have a heart for the, the children that are in the foster system would extend some measure of order to their lives. We pray that they would, they would have the emotional fortitude and dependence on you as they navigate a system that is itself disorderly. And as a church, cause us to pray for them, to support them, to care for them as they have a burden for these children. A true and genuine religion, Lord, looks like caring for the widow and the orphan. We pray that we would be that here at mission. Finally, Father, we also pray for the word this morning that is preached. May our hearts be open to all that you would have for us. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Nick. You may have a seat. And you can open up to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 
Uh, as I look out, I see many visitors this morning. Welcome to all of you. Uh, we are a church that goes through the Word. We pick a book and we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, even if it's uncomfortable. Amen? Amen. And this morning, we've got possibly one of the most uncomfortable sections of, of text, especially in our current culture. And so I joked with a couple of the law enforcement officers in our church that I needed their flak jackets. None of them brought them to my aid. Shame on you. So when you throw tomatoes at me, I have nothing. So just go ahead. This is going to take a while. This is probably going to be one of my longest teachings. I'm just telling you up front. The reason for that is because it takes a while to unwind. Um, and so let's just get prepared and open our Bibles up and get ready to work. Amen? Amen. Well, a while back, my wife and I decided to invest in our marriage by way of taking ballroom dancing lessons together. Does anybody else ever done that? Anybody? Yeah, a few of you. Okay, our friends, the Felix has got us into it. Uh, it's been a blast as we've learned the basic steps to the foxtrot and the tango, the waltz, the rumba, the salsa, the bachata, the single swing, and the hustle. Now you guys can just, you know, you can see your pastor out there, right? I got rhythm. Yeah, I do. Right? Six foot ten men dancing is not a good thing. It's been so interesting to learn all the steps and movements and to practice being in unison and in concert with my wife, Kelly, on every step. And in order to do that, we have each been given a role. One of us leads and one of us follows. Neither role is more or less important to the overall dance. If either decides to step out of their role, chaos and pain occur <laughs> as we run into each other or step on each other's toes. Usually it's my giant clown feet stepping on her beautiful dainty toes. We did not choose these roles. These roles were given to us by the dance instructors who teach us. And before you say that this is an artifact of a chauvinistic culture, I can assure you that very few people we have met in the ballroom dance scene would be considered traditional in their gender roles. It is just the given order. Both roles are equally necessary and valuable and difficult for opposite reasons. On one occasion, we were even encouraged to switch roles so that we could empathize with the weighty job of the other dance partner. You see, leading is hard, amen, and following is hard, amen? When we did it, it was chaotic because it's not the order of what had been put in place or taught. Now, in the local church of Ephesus, to whom Timothy had been sent by Paul to bring order to a church that was in disorder, there was a similar chaos occurring. And if we look to Scripture itself, we can see that there were some difficult things happening. Through multiple letters of Paul here in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and the, the letter to the Ephesians itself, we start to see a background. And what we've seen thus far is that there were ex-leaders spreading heresy and embroiled in division and conflict within the church. They were causing members of the church to be deceived and step out of God's will. We learned from Paul's second letter that one called Hymenaeus, who was referenced earlier a couple of weeks ago. He was teaching that the resurrection had already occurred, that they were already in the future epoch of time, and that people needed to change their behavior. He was teaching things that, like marriage and childbearing, were things of the past. And this was causing gender roles in the church to be questioned. And the clues that are left for us show us that these false teachers within the church were particularly focused on preying on women in the church and causing them to then try and step out of the good order that God had put in place by usurping spiritual authority. What was even more unfortunate is that this was possibly even coming from and or connecting to a trend in the surrounding culture of the time of 1 Timothy in the Greco-Roman world where a kind of sexual revolution was occurring in Greek culture. It's seen in some of Paul's comments and confirmed in extra-biblical sources that there was a push to, quote-unquote, liberate women from the supposed oppression of traditional male-female roles and from the traditional role of bearing children. Abortion became more prevalent. And so women within the church were being deceived by these two colliding problems. Does this sound familiar at all? Now, you might say, so what? In our world, it's the norm for women to fight back against what are now considered ancient traditional roles of men and women. After all, men have used them for abuse, and I would say you're absolutely right. But as we will see, there is a reason that Paul is speaking to Timothy about these issues as first and foremost as he seeks to put in place God's good order within his household, the church. You see, Christians are a people under authority that operate within the good order of God. 
And especially as his thinking paves the way for discussion around the authority that is to be present in the elders of the church, as we will see next week. Now remember that last week, Paul spent the first few verses of chapter 2 where we find ourselves commanding Timothy to begin the reorientation of the people in the church by pointing their eyes back to a common mission, the mission of God. Not their own mission. Their own mission was to be in submission to God's mission. And now we will see Paul speaking very pointedly to Timothy that he needs to get the members of the church in Ephesus realigned in God's will by obeying his ordering of responsibility and authority within the household of God, the church, especially as it displays itself in the public gathering and worship of the church. And so this morning what we're going to be looking at is Paul's call to the church to display God's good order. Paul's call to the church to display God's good order. That's what the title is if you're writing down notes. Paul's call to the church to display God's good order. Now let me pause here for a moment, though, before we jump into the text. And I want to give all of you fair warning. Brothers and sisters, you must decide right now if you believe that the Bible we hold in our hand is God's inspired, inerrant, and sufficient word. Because if you do not, if you believe you are the authority that gets to decide what is right and wrong with the Bible, and you get to pick and choose a buffet Christianity, then what I am about to teach you will greatly offend you. But if you believe the Bible to be God's inspired, inerrant, and sufficient word for all things relating to faith and godliness, and that it is our job to conform to it, not the other way around, then you will receive it with conviction and humility this morning. So with that warning in hand, let's read our text where we will see Paul's desire, Paul's reasoning, and Paul's encouragement to the church as he calls the church to display God's good order. Let's go ahead and read our text this morning, 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. Paul says to Timothy, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly, with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now can you see why this is going to take a while? (laughs) The first thing that we see this morning is this. Paul's desire, Paul's desire that God's household should display God's good order. Paul's desire is that God's household should display God's good order. And we see this in verses 8 through 12. Paul uses the words that are here translated as I desire, but this makes it seem as if he is saying something like, it's my preference, I would prefer. But the emphasis of this is more along the lines of, it is my will that. In other words, it's right on the border of being a command. He's stating that this should be the reality of the church. The place he desires things to happen is in the public worship gathering of the church. Paul's expressed view here and throughout his letters is that the gathered people of God are a collective witness to God's character, God's grace, and God's authority and rule over his people. This is why for the last 18 months I have said, Livestream church is not church. It does not fulfill the purpose of God. Visitors come, such as the many we have here today, and they look around at the people that are part of the church, and they see, by your example, are you in God's good order? They don't see that on a TV screen. And so the public gathering of God's people is important. So Paul wants the church to work together to be image bearers of God and his kingdom, especially in the way we publicly worship so that when visitors join us, they can see that people submitted to the good order of God. Well, Paul then breaks it down into subgroups from there of men and women. 
And we'll see why in a bit, so you got to keep holding on. He uses the same order he uses elsewhere to describe what are called household codes. You guys know what those are. In some of the other letters, he starts with wives, he starts with husbands, just like we read in Ephesians. But he does it here in looking to the household of God, and he gives a household code for the people of God, the church. And he begins with men's roles. Look again at verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. He begins with the men in the Ephesian church, and he calls us to prayer. Remember back to last week that Paul began chapter 2 with, first of all, or as we said, of first importance, that the church was to pray for people to be saved in order to align their eyes on the mission of God. And he looks to the men here for reasons that will become clear in a bit to lead the church in reordering itself and its worship to be focused on God's glory. He notes that men should pray and do so with a few qualifications. First, he uses an Old Testament allusion in shorthand by saying, lifting holy hands. Lifting hands in worship was very normal for Hebrews and ancient Near East worshipers. The psalmist, especially David in Psalm 24 that we heard earlier, Picture the worshiper lifting up their souls and their hearts to God as a sacrificial offering in the midst of their prayer. Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4 says this, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. In other words, those who walk in purity of heart and holiness, represented by these clean hands here in 1 Timothy, will lead their church in drawing near to God in prayer. This requires men who are willing to repent constantly, willing to be humble constantly, willing to lay down their lives in that model constantly. And Paul adds to this picture in 1 Timothy. He says, without anger or quarreling. Anger in the church, the very people that have been reconciled by God, a lack of reconciliation in the church, these denote an absence of patience and kindness and forgiveness and the charitable grace and love that is to adorn friendships within the church. Amen? This had crept into the church at Ephesus where Paul uses words in his second letter to Timothy Describing these same people who are causing conflict within the church using words like unappeasable, meaning nothing will satisfy them. In other words, unwilling to forgive and reconcile. And Paul is calling the men in the church to act like those under the authority of Christ and his law of love by uniting in peace with one another to worship God and lead their church together. But then Paul moves on from men to women, women's roles in the household of God and its public worship gatherings. Look at verses 9 and 10. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, you might notice that the section on women, including the next few verses, are longer than the men's instructions. But realize that Paul will give very detailed instructions and lengthy statements on what the men should look like in chapter 3 as he outlines the characteristics of the elders that every man should aspire to. And so he started with the men's roles to lead in resetting the vision and lead in worship. But then he spends a good deal of time on women's roles. And again, we will see why in a moment. So just hold off on that question. But first, notice with me that he connects the two with the words, likewise, just as the men are to act in purity... Just as I expect men to put God's good order in place, I expect the women to adorn themselves with the same purity of heart and godliness. And he does so by using the symbolism of outward apparel, hairstyles, and jewelry. Now let's pause for a moment and ask, is Paul truly focused on these outward items? Is he commanding that in the true church of God, women are to look unfashionable and drab? The answer is absolutely not. Because when God, through his inspired word, describes his bride, the church, he talks about her in beautiful adornment. He even talks about her jewelry. He does this in Revelation, for example. God also encourages a husband to be in awe of his wife's beauty, such as in the Song of Solomon or in various allusions in the prophets. And so, guys, no, this is not a command to look plain. 
Instead, notice in our text from 1 Timothy that Paul is calling women to adorn themselves. He's actually saying, put on more, but he's saying, do it with good works and with what is proper for women who profess godliness. This, like the call to men, is a call to lay aside what the world would expect of you in these gatherings, dressing in a way to draw attention to yourselves, and instead adorn yourself with what would move people's thoughts to God. In other words, service, love, purity, good works. And the good works noted here is not only something like voluntary service in the kids' wing or something else. It is more of a statement, an idiom of living out the works that God has declared for you as his servant. It is living a godly life under his law of love, under his authority. And this topic, the topic of authority in the household of God, is really what this entire section is about. It actually has nothing to do with clothing. Clothing and outward appearance in that society merely showed who you had as your authority. The closest thing that I can think of in our society that captures what the focus is here, without the distraction of talking about style, is to think of wedding rings. In our society, and, and really let's try and think back about 20 years, because today wedding rings don't even really mean much anymore, but maybe 20 years ago, a wedding ring said to pr prospective suitors, I am my spouse's and my spouse is mine. Hands off. We belong to one another. In Paul's day, to wear your hair in a certain way and follow the fashion of the women who were high in position in the Greco-Roman world was to say, uh, I am not under any authority. But to wear it in a different way is to say, I am under the leadership and authority of my husband. To braid it intricately or wear certain jewelry, as he discusses, was to say, I do not submit to anyone. I am my own authority. So Paul is not focusing on legalistic dress here, but rather on a topic called headship, which contains within it responsibility and authority especially as it is displayed in the life and public worship of the household of God. If you're wondering what headship is, hold on a second, I'll define it. We know that this is the case well because of the next two verses. Take a look at verse 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. The third portion here, after he talks about men and then he talks about women, he breaks it down even further. And here what he's talking about is God's headship displayed in the household of God and its public worship gatherings. It seems as though Paul is all over the place, hitting different subjects here, prayer, clothing, and now randomly teaching. But his focus has been and will be through verse 15, the topic of headship. And this is a word and theological topic that is odd to us in 2021 America. So let's define it. Everybody say headship. headship. Say it again. Say headship. headship. You're going to walk out of here with a theological understanding of headship. It gains its name from places like the Ephesians 5 passage on husbands and wives that we heard earlier, and also the same situation in Corinth of disordered gender roles where Paul had to say this in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 3. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. It also comes from Ephesians 1, which talks about the fact that Jesus is the head of the church. So this idea of headship. The English word here translated as head uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 11 or these other places I've talked about comes from the Greek word kephali. Headship contains within it two topics, responsibility and authority. So if you're writing down notes, you can say headship contains within it responsibility and authority. Responsibility is the state of being held accountable for someone or something else. A parent has responsibility for their child. A pilot has responsibility for the airplane he's flying. Responsibility. The state of being held accountable for someone or something else. 
authority, and man. Because of abuse and the misuse of power, so many pastors are trying to run around the mulberry bush with this one and not state it clearly. Authority is the right, the God-given right, to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience. Another thing I do in my part-time is I do Taekwondo. I am not good at it. I just got my camouflage belt. I can kick about this high, right? And yet, I am the biggest guy in the entire school. That doesn't mean anything. Because I have one of the instructors who's a young man who's probably about 12 years old, who's this tall, who tells me what to do, and guess what I say to him? Yes, sir. Why? Because there is a given authority. He has the right to give me orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience. The biblical theological topic of headship speaks to the order of responsibility and authority that God put in place in his created universe. And guess what? We don't get to change it. And once your eyes are open to look for headship, you see it everywhere in Scripture. You see it in the Trinity. You see it when the angels stepped out of their rightful place of authority. You see it in marriage, in the home, in the church. You see it everywhere that God has defined boundaries and orders of authority and responsibility. In our text to Timothy, Paul says that within the household of God, the proper headship as ordained by God is to be set in place where Jesus is the ultimate authority by his word, then men, particularly elders, are held responsible for how the household of God goes. Women are to submit to the authority of those to whom God has given responsibility. This means husbands in the home and elders in the household of God. And then immediately, what will the world say? Bigotry, sexism, chauvinism, abuse, before they even ever look at Paul's reasoning as to why this is. But let's be clear before we get to that reasoning on what Paul is and is not saying. He is saying that in the household of God that is the church, and especially in its public worship, men are to be the leaders bearing responsibility for the spiritual state of the flock, and women are to submit to their godly authority as they do so. Not if they step out of that godly authority, Not if they step out of of submission to the word, but as they walk in it. We know this most clearly because the very next section that Paul will write is the qualifications for the leaders of the church. The fathers of the faith in the local household of God, the elders, pastors, overseers, who we will see are only to be qualified, godly, word-abiding men. Still sinners saved by grace, still errant, still fallible. If you know any of the three of us, we are very fallible but men who are trying their level best to run their families and the church in a way that glorifies God. And Paul's reasoning will be clear in the next few verses, but before we get to that, let's be clear on what he is not saying, because this scripture has been misused in so many ways. Paul is not saying that women should never participate in public worship. In Corinth, for example, it is clear that Paul had women pray and speak, but not in the position of the leaders of the doctrine, preaching, and direction of the church. For those of you that are visiting, it's weird today because we don't have one of the women of our church praying or doing a reading. That is not intentional. That's just how it ran out. So if you want to blame somebody, don't blame me. Blame our volunteer coordinator, right? Okay? It's just how it worked out. But because I'm her covering and it's my responsibility, you should really blame me, okay? That's how it works. So don't blame Laura. She did a great job, okay? So it just worked out that way. So please don't go, oh, they only ever use men. No, we constantly have women up here, women who are walking with Jesus and are fantastic leaders in our church, praying and reading, okay? And so it's not that women should not participate in public worship. Also, Paul is not saying women should not serve by example in the church. He elsewhere commends multiple women in the church, especially for their service and hospitality and hosting gatherings in their homes. Paul is also not saying that all women are to be submitted to all men. So guys, unless you're her elder, do not try and run my wife's life. She's not submitted to you. But rather, there is an order to be obeyed within the home to their husbands and in the household of faith to their elders as long as those men are walking in submission to the word. Paul is not saying that women should only be stay-at-home moms. While this is a beautiful and honored occupation, and if you do that, God bless you for it, 
Paul elsewhere works with women like Lydia, who is a businesswoman and hosted a church in her home. And she's blessed because of it. Paul is not saying women should not study, be educated, or teach. Elsewhere, Paul commends a woman named Priscilla who helped disciple, along with her husband Aquila, a preacher named Apollos. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul commends the discipling that Timothy received at the hands of his mother and grandmother as they taught and discipled him. In his letter to Titus, Paul tells older women to teach younger women. And notice that in verse 11, Paul says that women should learn. So when this has been misused to try and keep women at a lower level of education, that is sin. It is not what it says. And lastly, women, can I please speak to you? It is not saying that you need to be weak. It is saying that you need to be meek. Meekness is strength under control. I am raising my seven-year-old daughter to kick the P. Wadden out of any male who should ever try and use his abuse on her. She's in Taekwondo with me, and she can kick a lot higher than I can. In one certain area, if it's a man. My wife is Irish to the core. You do not want to cross her, even if you're her husband. And yet, even though she outranks me in IQ, in godliness, and in everything else, she is meek, strength under control. So God is not telling you to be weak. In fact, wives, if your husband is not walking in bearing the responsibility God has given him, it is your God-given right and duty to step toe-to-toe with your husband and say, my brother in Christ, would you please stop being a boy and start being the man God intended you to be? And then come to your elders and ask us to help. What Paul is simply stating here in a manner that is inspired and at the same time a bit confusing is that women in the household of God are to submit to the leadership of godly elders. Women are not to be elders and pastors within the household of God's people, nor are they to be the ones responsible for providing apostolic teaching and preaching that leads the direction of the church's obedience to Christ. Thus, they are not to be the ones teaching in the public gathering of the saints. Does that mean women should never preach and never teach? No, absolutely not. But they are not to be elders. Now, before you rage against Paul's desire that God's household should display God's good order, let's take a look at his reasoning, and let's try and understand what his reasoning is. Because his reasoning is the story of rebellion to redemption in God's created order. His reasoning, friends, is the gospel. Paul's reasoning is the story of rebellion to redemption in God's created order. Let's read 1 Timothy 2, 13 through 15, just the first portion of 15, and we'll see what he says there. I do not, or excuse me, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing. Pause there. Paul speaks in a way prior to this, verses 8 through 12 that was hated in Timothy's day by the surrounding culture and is hated in our day. But then he pauses and he gives the reasoning of this idea of headship, the good order that God put in place at creation. Now let's think through that story where God formed Adam first and then Eve. In Genesis 2, and if you want to, you can turn there. I'm not going to quote Uh, exact verse, but you can follow through and kind of read it. In Genesis 2, God fashioned a being who was to be a representative of all mankind and gave him a responsibility to protect God's good garden from error and teach truth. Who was that? Who did he give the responsibility to? Adam. Adam was responsible. But Adam could not do it on his own. It was not good that he dwelt alone, nor that he held this position alone. And so he needed help. And so God formed a helper fit for him, the woman, Eve. And God gave them both, as they worked together, collective authority over the creation. As they danced together in this dance God had given them with opposite roles, they had collective authority over creation, including the beasts of the field. 
So if we were to break down this idea of authority and responsibility or headship, it would look like this. This was the order God put in place. God is the ultimate authority who is responsible for his creation. He gave responsibility and authority to Adam only in so much as Adam stayed within submission to God to lead Eve, who would then assist Adam in bearing this responsibility by giving him authority and following his godly lead. And they then collectively were to have authority over the created realm, including the beasts. But in his letter to Timothy here, Paul next references the fall, chapter 3 of Genesis, by saying, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Notice that word, transgressor. To transgress, this is a special word. It means to not stay in clearly delineated boundaries. Let that sit for a second. To transgress against God's law is to not stay in clearly delineated boundaries, but to overstep them. It's an authority word. It means to take on authority where you have not been given it. Paul is here referencing the fall in which the adversary of God came to Eve in the form of a serpent, a beast of the field, and accused God to Eve and in a way ordained her with authority to rebel against God's good order, to decide for herself what was good and evil. So instead of the creature, the beast, being under the headship of Adam and Eve, they switch. And then if you continue, Eve goes to who next? Adam, her husband, who is responsible for holding her accountable to God's good order, and she convinces him to follow her lead in rebellion. In essence, Eve usurps Adam's authority and Adam forsakes his God-given responsibility. Brothers, this is what happens every time your wife asks you to step up in spiritual leadership in your home and you're too busy playing video games, so she has to usurp your authority. But then the worst part happens. Adam and Eve get caught by God, and as an answer, Adam says that it was someone's fault. Whose fault does he say it was? That's what you start with. It was the woman's fault, but then he says very clear words. If you look in the text, he says, who you, God, gave me. Who does he actually blame? Did you catch that? He blames God. Headship, the good order, as you see on the screen, of God's commanded and ordained leadership structure in relation to his creation has now been completely reversed. Our first mother and father said clearly, we know better than God. We will ascend to his throne and decide good and evil for ourselves. And they did so by disordering the gender roles that God put in place. By usurping God's good order that he installed, they were ultimately, and we are ultimately, usurping God's authority as we live out lives made in the image of Adam and Eve in original sin. And God's wrath was now deserved by Adam and Eve and every one of their offspring. And friends, in that wrath, God was not going to blame the creature nor the woman. Who did he place responsibility for this fall upon? Who? Adam. The curse of Adam. Was Adam the one that sinned first originally? So brothers, when you blame your wife for a bad marriage, you should actually probably go and look in the mirror first. We can try and disobey God's good order all we want, but God places responsibility at the feet of those to whom he has given responsibility, whether they like it or not. A somber word for us who lead our homes and for us as elders who lead the church. And yet, if we read a bit further in Paul's letter to Timothy, there is hope. Praise God, right? Okay, take a collective breath, men. Okay, it's okay. It's okay. God knows you're a failure. It's all right. God knows I'm a failure. It's okay. 
There's a collective sigh because look at 2.15a, yet she will be saved through childbearing. You see, Paul reminds the church of this last portion of the creation there that you see on the right side of the screen, this last portion of the fall story and his installed good order by reminding them of the words God spoke to Eve. The first mention of the good news of a coming Messiah who would take away the sins of the world and restore what you see on the right side of your screen there, the now severed order of authority that God put in place, he says to the serpent, judgment, and part of that judgment is this in Genesis 3.15. This is the first mention of the gospel in the entire Bible. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Why is this the first mention of the gospel? Because the word offspring in the Hebrew is tzerah. It means seed. Okay, biology majors. Do women have seed? Who has seed? Men. By the seed of a woman, a virgin, will come an offspring that will kill the serpent, Satan, and his undoing of God's order. The gospel of God is that we as humanity attempted to usurp the proper role and authority of God thus severing our relationship with him and bringing rightful wrath upon ourselves. And yet, God would still bear the responsibility for us even though we didn't deserve it. That's responsibility. By sending his son, born through the seed of a woman, to come and redeem mankind and restore the proper order of God's authority. You see, in Jesus of Nazareth, this was accomplished. The Bible states that Jesus was sinless and in perfect obedience to the authority of the Father. He never transgressed. He never said, no, I'm going to decide. Not my will, but your will be done, he said. You see, Jesus was the anti-Adam. He did what Adam chose not to do, and Jesus obeyed the Father in perfect holiness, even when it didn't make sense. Ladies, it may not make sense to you that God put you in a place of submission to your goofy husband or to these goofy elders. But obedience is required even when it doesn't make sense. That's why it's obedience. My children ask me all the time, why are you asking me to do that? And I say to them, why don't you obey first and then we'll give you reasoning later? Because I'm trying to teach them to obey God even when it doesn't make sense. And you see, this is what made Jesus fit to be the spotless lamb who was sacrificed on the altar of the cross at Calvary to pay the price for your sin and mine, the sin of the whole world that rages against the proper authority and headship of God. And in so doing, Jesus fixed the created order. He placed the Father as highest authority. He was the new, better Adam who actually kept his responsibility and took authority. He did so over his bride, the true church, who is actually submitted to him in his authority. And that church will inherit the kingdom of God and the entire earth. And now, as his spirit draws men and women into that restored order, he calls them to exist in this restored order with contentment and joy without groaning. Part of how we know this is that back in our text from Timothy, the Greek manuscripts have a definite article that is not shown in our English. And if you don't know what a definite article it is, it is the, okay? The. This is the podium, not a podium. The podium, right? That's the Ryan Johnson over there, okay? Not just any old Ryan Johnson. That is the Ryan Johnson, one of our elders, all right? It's a specific, definite article. And so a wooden translation of where this the goes is right before the word childbearing. Yet she will be saved through the childbearing. And it's this weird word in the Greek. He's speaking of Genesis 3.15 the fulfilling of the offspring that would come, that would save Eve and her offspring from transgression. He's speaking of the cross. What Paul has done here is he has simultaneously pointed back to the message of salvation in Genesis 
that would restore Eve and her offspring from, from being transgressors. He is pointed to Jesus as the fulfillment of that promise. And at the same time, he has used it as a symbol and type for the women within the church of Ephesus as the most notable example of the divinely intended difference in roles between men and women. Giving of childbirth. Because guess what, guys? As much as you want to try, even in this broken, weird world, you cannot naturally give birth to babies. Just like women, you cannot usurp the God-given authority that God gave to the husband in the home and elders in the church. I know for some of you that's hard to hear. Paul is saying, in a bit of a confusing manner, women are saved through the promised offspring of Eve, Jesus. And as a result of that salvation, they are now called back into God's defined good order, which means that they should keep their proper position within that good order. And friends, this is not a statement as has been flippantly abused in the past of women should be stay-at-home moms in the kitchen doing housewife things. That's not what this is talking about. It's talking about the order of headship. And this is not also focusing on childbirth as a means of salvation. Now, most Christians would say, oh, yeah, that's not, not, not what it means. I know that. But in practicality, in the church, women who are unable to naturally have children or single women feel this weight because there's this spiritual greatness that's ascribed to moms. And I think it's partly due to a misunderstanding of this verse. Paul elsewhere sings the praises of women who stay single in order to give their lives to Jesus and see no need to marry and have children. So this is not saying that women in the church who are mothers achieve a spiritual superiority or that it's your ultimate mission. I think many times in the church I watch women who become moms and all of a sudden, finally, I've gotten my mission from God. Guess what will happen 18 years later? You'll feel removed from your husband, and you'll have no mission in life anymore. Because your mission as a mom is to be in submission to God's mission of making disciples. That doesn't stop if you're 5, 15, 25, or 80. So this is not talking about childbirth in a literal fashion in that way. This is all about being in the proper order of authority within the household of God, to show the watching world that you ultimately submit to the authority of the one who gave himself as a ransom for all. Operating within the given and God-ordained gender roles within the home and within the household of faith shows the surrounding world that you are ultimately submitted to the authority of your King Jesus Christ. Men, in fact, taking on responsibility, men, has nothing to do with your wife and kids. It has to do with your submission to Jesus. Ladies, Taking on your submission to your husband and the elders of this church has nothing to do with your husband or the elders of this church. It has to do with your submission to Jesus. Amen. It shows the surrounding world that you are ultimately submitted to the authority of your King, Jesus Christ. Now, is this confusing and not the most straightforward way of saying this truth? Absolutely. I said earlier in prayer, I'm going to have words with Paul when I get to heaven. <laughs> Brother, can you please be more linear? But I just want you to listen. You might think that this is off topic, but I want you to listen to the Apostle Peter's commentary on Paul's writing really quick. It'll make us feel better. This is in 2 Peter 3.15. Peter's writing to the church and he says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. <laughs> Notice this. There are some things in them, in Paul's writings, that are hard to understand. Thank you, Peter. Fist pound, right? Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. To the true church, he says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care, watch out, be cautious, that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Paul's writings, even by his peers' admission, are confusing sometimes, but they are godly and inspired. And Peter says, some will twist what he is saying. And so, there have been twisted views of the scripture we have looked at today, indeed, emerging from this passage. 
One side that is errant has been used for abuse. I have sat in counseling meetings as I have watched abusive husbands verbally berate their wives that they're not good submitted wives. And you'll find out real quickly what I think about that in counseling meetings. Because I will look at the brother and say, well, it would help if you were actually submitted to Christ's call to love your wife. That's the side for abuse. This is not what Paul is saying. The created order of God's headship requires that the men that lead under submission to the ultimate rule of Christ and his word, so that's husbands and that's elders. So friends, when you come and question the elders, we absolutely do not have a problem with that because we appreciate you holding us in accountability to God's word. What we do have a problem with is when we point you to God's word and you say, no, I know better, that's when we have a problem. The the created order of God's headship requires that men lead under submission to Christ and his word. Otherwise, they are acting in authority outside of what they have been given. Now, the other errant side is to completely dismiss this section as only based on cultural context. Oh, well, they were dealing with certain things in Ephesus, and this doesn't really apply to us. That is getting very, very common in people dismissing parts of the Bible. But friends, notice that the desire for men in verse 8 is that in every place that they do what is required. And the reasoning that Paul provides is one of universal application in the creation and fall. This is not meant for Ephesus only. The proper solution for misuse of authority is not disuse, but proper use. And the application of this truth is for all God's people at all times and in all places, regardless of culture. God's people are to display God's good order within the household of faith by operating within the headship that God ordained. Can I please get an amen? Amen. Now, what does this mean practically? Let's not focus on the home and marriage because that's actually not the focus of this. You can connect it just like we did with the Ephesians 5 passage, but that's actually not the tight focus of this passage. The focus is the household of faith, and as we will see beginning in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, submission to the body, submission of the body to the leaders of the household of faith, the elders and pastors, including Paul and Timothy. So what this means is that God will hold the men that are in this role of elders responsible for the doctrine people were receiving at the local church of Ephesus. We have to reclaim the understanding, friends, as congregants, That when you are a member of a church, God will hold those elders in that church that you are part of responsible for your actions. Do you know that I will have to give account, Ryan and Tyler will have to give account for every action you do transgressing the law of God? It's not about you. It's about us and the glory of Christ. And those within the church, especially the women who were being misled by the surrounding society and the false teachers among them, and the men who were in conflict with Paul and Timothy, they were being called in this text to assist those leaders by willingly giving them authority, not to abuse them, but to lead the household of God under submission to God's word. Paul is calling the men and the women to accept God's authority over them and display it by working as a team to show the world what it is to be the people of God under God's headship. Men in the church taking on the weighty responsibility of God-given authority to lead the flock, primarily in the role of elders. Women and the rest of the men giving authority to those holding that responsibility by following their lead as they act within the bounds of Scripture. And then when they fail, if it's not a disqualifying failure, to give them grace and room to get back on track as they call them to account, to give them room to repent and to apologize so that we can lead together. Now, so many of us preachers and teachers have tried to go beyond Scripture's account to find a reason for male headship in the church, and in doing so, preachers have come up with some really weird theories that, ladies, I have to apologize to you for because it causes you to carry burdens of having something innately wrong with you. Well, women are more spiritual, and so they're more easily uh, deceived, and so that's why we don't do it. No. If you've ever heard that, that's garbage. 
Ladies, there is nothing innately wrong with you that causes you to be in this order of headship. The reality given in Scripture is that there is no value difference in men or women. Friends, here's the truth. It is only this way because that is what God commanded. There is no other reason. So take it up with him. His email is not Hans at missionsalem.com. It is simply this way because that is what God commanded and ordained. Friends, to fight against it because you believe responsibility carries with it some innate value statement is simply untrue. To follow that logic would then mean that a parent is more valuable than a child because they have responsibility for and authority over the child. And no women, I'm not calling you children. I'm just saying, look at that example. Is a parent more valuable than a child because they have responsibility for and authority over their child? No, we would say that is false. In fact, to carry the responsibility for that child and authority over them should mean that a parent would willingly die in their child's place, just as Christ did for the church, just as a husband should do for their wife, and just as an elder should do for his church. To die for the people. And ladies, if you think, oh, well, it's not fair that women don't get to be an elder, I I say this halfway jokingly, but Pretty truthfully, I think all three of us as elders after the last two years would gladly give you the responsibility to do so. (laughs) Being an elder, when done rightly, is a horrible job. It's a horrible job. It's a horrible job. Can I say it again? It's a horrible job. (laughs) We would gladly give it up to you. But God commands different. The church of Ephesus was buying into the heresy and conflict of ungodly men who were making a shipwreck of the church, and the women were being led astray, trying to usurp authority, and Paul is telling Timothy, get them back in the order God put in place so that they can accurately display their obedience to God and and of his gospel to the outside world. Get back in the appropriate order. But then he finishes with, and this is my last point, an encouragement. And praise God for that because this is a hard passage. Amen? Paul lays some really heavy words down. He reminds us of the gospel, which in and of itself is heavy because Jesus bore the responsibility for people who didn't appreciate him and died for our sin. So he finishes with his encouragement. Endure in the faith and God's good order. He finishes with that last section of verse 15. You see, the society surrounding this local church in Ephesus was confused about gender roles and leadership in the home and church. It was a constant draw to continue in the sin of Eve and usurp God's given authority. And the heresy of the false leaders and teachers in the church was a constant draw as well, just like it is today, friends. And so God says through Paul to Timothy, to the church, step back into the command and good order of God so that you can display God's good order to the world. In other words, church, you're going to look weird because the world is going to say you're crazy for being in this order, just like they do today. And in so doing, in submitting yourself to the lordship of Christ and the truth of his gospel, in that gospel, you will be saved. That's what he reminds them of in verse 15, even if it's in a confusing way. And then he says, if... They continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. In other words, you're saved by grace through faith, but you have to hold strong in it. You have to endure in it, even if other things pull you away from it. And this motif of salvation that is not one moment in time, but is past, present, and future is not new for Paul. He says something similar to Timothy himself right there in 1 Timothy 4.16. You can look at it in your Bibles or up on the screen. He says to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. He uses that same word save, sozo in the Greek. In being cautious for himself and watching over the teaching, Timothy was not performing an act of salvation, nor replacing the cross of Christ. But in persisting and enduring in the faith, Timothy himself would stay firm in salvation 
that was purchased by Christ and would help others hold firm in it as well. And so Paul's encouragement to the women and even to the men here, to the entire church, the bride of Christ, was to continue in faith, to submit to God's good order and then endure in it. And so, friends, we start our application, and I finish up with these few application points. We start our application with this. Visitor, if you have not surrendered your life to Jesus as Lord, as authority, if you have not surrendered your life to the authority of his word, then you have lived a life and are living a life that is disordering God's good order. You are guilty and deserve his wrath. And one day you will have to face him And on that day, you will rightly deserve his wrath. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus didn't want to leave you there. Jesus obeyed in your place, stepped into the right order of God in your place, died in your place, and raised again in your place. And he's calling you to step back into his good order. Would you do that with him today? Would you surrender to him finally? All these years of fighting back, thinking you were the judge of good and evil. Will you finally surrender your life to him today? If you would like to do that, I would love to pray with you after the service. Talk to you about what it is to be discipled and follow God's law. But our next point of application, men of Mission Fellowship, I want to ask you, have you willingly embraced your place in God's good order of headship? Are your hearts pure, with regards to submitting your lives to the authority of Christ and his word and his people. Does Paul's description of men who are at peace and always aiming at reconciliation within the body describe you? Or do you hold on to bitterness and anger? Are you unappeasable? Are you a man who gladly takes on responsibility for others? or who shies away from it and escapes into your hobbies because it's too hard? Men of mission, these are questions we need to ask ourselves. Women of mission, which gets more attention in your life? Your outward apparel and adornment or the constant pursuit of Jesus and his word so that a life defined by godliness is what people see when they look at you? I want you to know that you can keep presenting your God-given beauty. This is not a text against that. But then go above and beyond that effort with the effort to obey God and his word and to clothe yourself in godliness. Also, what is your view of godly male authority that takes responsibility? And ladies, I want to say to you that it is probably the case for over half of you in this room that you have probably been abused by men who have misused their authority and power, and that is heartbreaking and horrific to God. But the proper solution to misuse is not disuse, but proper use. Don't submit to abusive males. Submit to godly males who image Christ to you. What is your view of godly male authority that takes responsibility? Have you bought into the world's empowerment like Eve? Or are you submitted to God's good order in the home and the church? Ladies, these are questions that you need to ask yourselves. Brothers and sisters of mission, God the Father obviously cares very deeply about authority and rebellion. It is what destroyed his world and good order, and it is what cost the life of his son to restore. How submitted are you to the authority of God's word? Do you submit to it even if you don't like it? Do you seek out the blatant truth that it provides when interpreted to understand the original author's meaning? Or do you just pick and choose? If so, if you are a person that picks and chooses and does not seek truth, 
you are still in the image of Adam and Eve. And I encourage you to seriously question whether Jesus is your Lord at all. If you are king over the Bible, then Jesus is not your king because it's his spoken word. And lastly, brothers and sisters, how would someone who witnesses the interaction of those leading and those being led in this church describe mission fellowship? Would they say that God's good order is in place here? Or would they see ungodly leaders and rebellious and conflictual followers? Are we as a local church displaying God's good order for all to see? If not, then we need to repent. There are many application points for us to ponder and many chances for repentance in each of our hearts. May the church have ears to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to it this morning. Amen? Amen. Amen.